0: Families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liar, liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commandments of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. To the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is the word of the Lord. Now let's pray. Father, we thank you so much uh, for this ministry that Titus and Paul took upon themselves on Crete. It was a difficult work. Lord, it was a hard-hearted Uh, false teachers that they were dealing with as they guarded the sheep and organized the sheep, Lord, and and oversaw your church there. And as we consider the context of these verses, as we consider uh, how best to understand them, I pray, God, that you would give us a great deal of insight and and, and enlighten our minds by your Spirit. Open our hearts and our minds. Let us not be, um, Lord, needlessly or carelessly rough with our words, but teach us to speak words of life, Lord, whether those are sharp words or soft words, we thank you and we praise you in the name of your Son, and amen. Now, this concludes this whole opening section, which has been very long, uh, on leadership. He covers leadership very thoroughly, and then next week we're going to get into chapter 2, where he starts to to categorize his teaching by age. Uh, So first he speaks to the leaders and, and to leadership itself, and then he starts talking about how to minister to Older people and younger people, men and women, servants and slaves. And that's what we're going to look at next week. So this concludes, actually. This this is tightly connected to the sermon last week. In fact, last week and this week was one sermon that I separated into two. Um, I, I just needed to develop that first idea a little bit. Thank you all for, for that hour of your time. And now what we're going to do is we're going to, to look at... Um, some evidence. We're going to look at what, what, did I, what was I talking about last week. If you went away and you were in any way, shape, or confused, or even slightly disheartened, <laughs> um, or, or if you were encouraged, what, whatever was going on last week, now what we're going to do is we're going to look at some very real specifics that were going on on Crete that help enlighten us as to what, what that was all about. Okay, so If you back up and you look at verses 5 through 9, what they outline are how Titus identifies men qualified to be stewards in God's household. And he identifies them by the fact that they are good stewards of their own households. Now, it is remarkable to me how difficult it is for people to just accept this truth, okay? I don't think it's difficult to understand. I think it's difficult to accept. If you want to be a steward over God's household, you have to be a good steward over your own household. It's simple. It's simple. But that doesn't make it hard to accept, (laughs) And, and, and I think many of us in the modern church really have a difficult time with this because we're individualists, right? Our kids are separate from us. How they turned out has nothing to do with me. It's their own faith, their own... And all this Baptistic, non-covenantal thinking makes it very difficult to accept this straight up fact. If you can't manage your own household, you have no right managing the household of God. And, and what we're told here is that Titus will recognize good household managers by the fruit. Now... Whoa, how judgy of you, Paul. How judgy. (laughs) The straightforward fact, the thing that we need to get down into our bones, something that we all need to rally around as a people is this. Good deeds reveal good creeds. Bad deeds reveal bad creeds. Titus is to appoint elders who are good house stewards, and they are good house stewards for or because, it says in verse 7, they are hospitable, lovers of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined, while not being arrogant, quick-tempered, violent, drunk, or greedy for gain. They hold firm to the trustworthy word, and so they have two voices—the two voices necessary to minister faithfully: one for instructing in sound doctrine, and one for rebuking those who contradict it. And that—and and both, right? The, their ability to do both is is shown in the in their home. What kind of husband are they? What kind of father are they? That, and what you do is you look at both of those, and you say, oh, this is a man who can handle the word of God. Now, verse 10, we see a second for, the same word, because, okay, a good house steward is a one-woman man and raises his children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Their, their purpose, the proper use of these men, men who um, are one-woman men, who raise their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, their purpose what they are for is to combat those who are upsetting whole households. If you know how to defend a home, your responsibility then is to then help others defend theirs. And, and, and again, this is simple. This is simple. It's hard, to under, it, it's hard to accept though. If you are good at defending your household, I want you to teach me how to defend mine. And in and, and the Christian life, right, this is, this is why so much of the faith actually does depend upon personalities. You look at someone and you say, I, I see what they have and I want what they have. Now you either envy it and, right, and you become corrupt in your desire to have it, or what you do is you find someone and you sit at their feet and you learn. How, how do you get your kids to do that? Why does your wife look so happy, right? Why, why does she seem so content? Why are your kids so obedient? When you find that person, go to their church. Okay, and, and during all this, this chaos over the last couple of years, this has been my advice to people who ask me: should I leave? Should I do this? I do? Uh, find, find the guys, find men who, whose households are in order, whose wives are lovely and flourishing, and, and whatever denomination that is, go there. Okay? I care less about the second part. Paul says: men with strong voices must silence and rebuke sharply those who profess to know God but deny him by their works. They can say whatever they want with their mouths, but their hands are doing the talking. Their hands are demonstrating what they really believe, who they really submit to, what they really think. Men whose good creeds are proven by their good deeds must muzzle the evil beasts who are incapable of good works because their creeds are contrary to the truth. There's nothing that they can do that's good because everything that they believe is lies. And your job is to muzzle them Right? That's what, your job, Titus, is to go and muzzle the wild dogs who are barking and yapping and upsetting households. Now, I know all of us have li- had neighbors who have dogs who upset whole households, right? Come summertime, and you're like, man, I, I can't afford air conditioning, but I can open a window, and then 2 a.m., boom, there's the dog, right? And then there's your kids awake, right? Everything's unsettled, everybody's grumpy, and, and that's what's going on here. There are barking dogs who are upsetting households, and Titus is is now... The, the animal catcher who's got to go out and muzzle the dog. And, and I think right out of the gate, when you put it that way, that's the thesis of this text. All kinds of idols, all kinds of problems appear in our own hearts. What you, why are you calling them evil dogs? What do you mean muzzle them? What do you mean against their, like muzzle them against their will? What are you going to do now? Well, right? How do we understand what's being said we see that setting the church on Crete aright means discerning those men who can fight the good fight of the faith. Titus is to find men who have been mastered by God's word sword so that they can master false teachers and homewreckers with God's word sword. That's what they're for. That's their purpose. Now, the English dawn of all people, right, the, the poet, the mythmaker, C.S. Lewis said this in Mere Christianity, Christianity is a fighting religion. Now, in, in mere Christianity, he explains a great deal. He talks about all kinds of things, and, and, and he makes a lot of great explanations. What I love about his own day, right, and this, this quote that I have here, it explains a lot of the differences between his day and our day. He, you know what he didn't explain? This, ver, this, this quote. He didn't feel like he had to convince anyone <laughs> that Christianity was a fighting religion, right? He, he says it, he drops it, and he moves on, and then he starts explaining scientism. And I thought, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, for my own day, it would have been really nice if he would have left an explanation as to what that means. He said Christianity is a fighting religion. Now, later, he added in Mere Christianity this this quote as well. Christ never meant that we were to remain children in intelligence. On the contrary, he told us to be only as harmless as doves, but also as wise as serpents. He wants a child's heart, but a grown-up's head. He wants us to be simple, single-minded, affectionate, and teachable as good children are, but he also wants every bit of intelligence we have to be alert at its job and in first-class fighting trim, right? He wants your mind, God, Christ, wants you to have a child's heart and a mind that can go 12 rounds with unbelief, he, he wants a heart that is that longs for the things that he longs for, that loves truth, beauty, and goodness the way he loves them, but he wants your mind to be able to, to, to persevere, to fight, and to tear down strongholds. And, and I think if we just got these two things straight, we would, we would work out all kinds of problems in Christianity. A child's heart and a, and a mind in fighting trim. Now the wise, the wise are discerning. They are judgy, okay? Just like I I will make t-shirts that say Christian nationalism. You want to call me a Christian nationalist, ladies and gentlemen, I will explain what I mean by that. And if you want to call me that like it's a bad thing, like they used to call the Puritans as if it was a bad thing, I'm taking the name upon myself. And if people want to throw judgy at me, I am now doing that too. I'll have a shirt that says Christian nationalist and a hat that says judgy, right? I mean, (laughs) I'll do it because this, yes, Yes, I am here to judge what you are doing. I am here to judge what you are saying. I am here to, to hear what you are saying and see what you are doing and make judgments about your heart. That is what I'm going to do. Now, does that sound dangerous to anyone else? Right, especially if you know me at all, right? You're like, whoa, Mike, calm down. But, but this is what we are called to do. And the world says, oh, look at how judgy you're being. And everybody's like, oh, oh I'm sorry, oh, I'm sorry. When you should be like no 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 now you know I'm going to I'm going to judge you for making that comment. But that's not the kind of people we, we are at this point. You ought to make distinctions. You ought to weigh evidence and come to conclusions. You ought to have an open mind that closes on something. I am tired of closed minds that never think about anything, and I'm tired of minds so open that things come and go as they please, and it never closes on something. You have an open mind in order for it to close on something. You you look at the fruit, and you can tell the health of the root, and all of it you can do with a joyful heart and faithful love of a child. You can do it. You can do it. Paul is outlining here what I'm now going to... I have a book title, The Swashbuckling Ethic, right? I trademarked that, Trademark that, make sure we get that. That is what he is talking about here. This swashbuckling ethic has been repeated many times to great effect throughout the history of the church. Okay, among the reformers of the 16th century, men who left their tonsures and their bare feet for riding boots and feathered hats... Right? These, these were men who left their ascetic bread and water for the shameless fruit of Eden. The, right? That's what I love about the Reformation. These were men who were like, listen, right? we're, life is not about ascetics. Life is not about what we're denying ourselves. Life is not about living alone and just contemplating God. These were men who sang and wrote and spoke in the vernacular. They set the holy calling of a milkmaid alongside that of a bishop. They were scandalous, and Puritans were the same way. People think the Puritans are something other than what they were. They were a scandalous party, right? Martin Luther left off being a monk and got married. And and all the bishops and all the cardinals in in Rome laughed their hats off because they were like, look at, he's just a sensual guy. Because in their world, they couldn't, right? For them, that's not how religion worked. It's about me. It's about my ascetic principles. It's about me listening to the Pope. It's all this individual nonsense. And the, and the Puritans and the Reformers came along, and they're like, no, 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 no. It's about living life fully in Christ, all of it. Okay, This is the Calvinist of the old school. This is the cigar-chomping Spurgeon. This is Spurgeon who would literally walk up to the pulpit with a cigar, put it out on the pulpit, and begin preaching. And then when he was done, he'd take it up again and light it. And, 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 and you, tell me, you go and you read a Spurgeon sermon and tell me that man doesn't love Jesus. But in our world, could you imagine such a thing? I, I could say and do lots of, could you imagine my walking up here and putting a cigar out on the pulpit? Okay. Not only would Jay, our Landlord have a few things to say about that, I think the deacons would have a few things to say about that. But why? Why was he this kind of guy? What, what did he understand about the gospel? Okay, the Chestertonian Puritan that Lewis loved so much because Christ loved him so much. And if you don't know what that means, it's C.S. Lewis talked about this. There's Chestertonian, which is hilarious. He's a Catholic. Puritanism, which is Protestant. And, and, and if you read Chesterton, right, he was a, a man that lived large, and he lived to the fullest because he was full of Christ. And, and if you go and you read what he wrote, he, he had what I was talking about last week. He knew what tone to take with who at what time. C.S. Lewis knew what tone to take with whom at what time. If you read his public statements about the faith, if you see him read his debates, and you read his personal letters, he was a man who knew the full range of the word of God, the tonal range of the word of God. Now, Pastor Wilson, in his commentary on Titus over this section, verses 10 through 16, said this, when it says that those who contradict are to be rebuked, this runs contrary to the spirit of the age. Many today regard tolerance as the supreme virtue, a virtue more important than truth, any truth. While a Christian should always be gracious when he disagrees with others, there are times when he not only may take issue, but where he must take issue. This is part of the minister's job, and in order to refute error, a minister must remain steadfast in the truth. And as I've been arguing, the minister does this to demonstrate to the body of Christ how it's done. It's not like I have a calling separate from yours in its entirety. What I'm doing now, how I talk to you in the counseling room, how I communicate with you around um, the dinner table, how I communicate with you in email, I am trying to do it in such a way as to instruct you in the full range of tone, the tonal range of the scriptures. Right, Titus and 1 Timothy and Second Timothy are not just books for ministers, because the ministers are supposed to be setting the standard. Okay, To equip you to be judgy. I want you to be a much judgier people. That is, what I would, that is my hope and wish. I get on my knees and I pray, God, let them be judgier. As Jesus said in John chapter 7, verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Now that right there says it all. Do not judge by appearances, judge with the right judgment, right? We, now, appearances there, is, 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 there's some, it's ethereal, right? You just take a, you make a quick assessment. You look at Jesus, and he's not like all the other rabbis, and you're like, oh, this guy must be of Beelzebub. <laughs> and and they, were, they were making these pronouncements about him because they, were, they weren't judging by the real measure. Now, what is the real measure by which we ought to be judging? The word of God. That's the only one. You can't see hearts, but you can see works. You can't see creeds, but you can see deeds. You can't see roots, but you can see fruits. And we know from Matthew chapter 7, verse 15 to 20, right? Now you, have to, now you have to reconcile this with what I just said. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right of judgment. And then Jesus says this. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, right, appearances, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So not by appearances, you will recognize them by the fruit. So what's the difference here? What does he mean? Appearances here, fruit here. What's the difference? Right? On the outside, they look like they're wearing sheep's clothes, but they're ravening wolves on the inside. Well, how do you know? They're fruit. Well, I don't understand. That both seems like appearances to me. And, and this is why wisdom is required. This is why meditation on this requires. That's why in a community, you've got to start to figure out on a small scale, when you're dealing with sins, the sins of one another, the false doctrines of one another, you're learning, you learn to do it on a much larger scale. And I think part of the problem is we don't, we don't do it on a smaller scale, and so we're totally incapable of doing it on a large one. We, we can hardly judge our spouse, rightly, and, and then we want to judge the president. We can hardly judge our own children, right? That's so unloving. To ju- don't be so judgy with your kids. And, 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 and yet, we think that we're gonna judge the Supreme Court. We think we're gonna judge the governor. We think we're gonna judge our boss. And, and you can't even look in the face of your, the people who you live in, in your house and make any kind of judgment statement, and that's what's wrong with us. And then Paul tells right, and then I come along with a sermon like this, and, and, and it's like hypothetically, imagine an eight-year-old boy who's kind of right on the edge of, right on the edge of maturity, and you give him a knife for his birthday. You're like, "Happy birthday, son! Here's a knife. It's only three inches, so I don't think it's going to re- quite reach into anything too vital." And he then takes that knife goes to open all the rest of his presents, promptly gives himself a cut that requires three stitches. Now, that's what, right? If we don't know what we're doing, you listen to a sermon like this, and you're going to just go out there and cut yourself and cut people accidentally all over the place. And then, and then, <laughs> and then we got to send Eric Lilly a doctor of foot around to heal everybody because we're all cut up. And, and what I'm saying is what we're talking about is the mature level that we have got to get to. And, and, and just like everything else, you learn it at home, right? You, and, then, and then the circle expands. You learn to do it to yourself, you learn to do it in your home, and then you learn to do it from house to house, and then from church to church, and then church to culture. The false teachers must be rebuked, whether they live in your house, whether they live in your church, whether they live in the broader community, whether they live in the state of Washington, whether their name, they, 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 it says C-R-E-C next to their name, False teachers need to be dealt with wherever they are. But I'm telling you right now, don't just go on Facebook now and be like, you know, I'm going to round up some PCA guys and really let them have it. Please. <laughs> okay, please don't do that. By loving our, brother, loving our brothers requires us sometimes to rebuke them. We think it's loving not to spank the kid. We think it's loving not to say anything to our spouse. We think it's loving not to be all judgy. But sometimes loving people requires us to be judgy. Leviticus 19.17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you, you incur sin because of him. We do not understand the power of sin. It is like leaven, though, but one of the most powerful idols gripping the hearts of modern Christians is the cult of nice. The cult of nice. It is not nice. It's not polite to tell people that they're sinning. It's not polite to tell them that their doctrines are terrible. It's not polite. Now, I was told once, I was, I was sitting down with a man, and he told me, because of the tone of my overall ministry, he was like, I would rather be nice than right. I was like, oh, hmm. I'd rather be nice than right, Yeah, yeah. You don't love the truth. You don't love the truth was my answer. How is I? I'm 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 saying it as nicely as I can. You love yourself more than truth. You love your own comfort more than you love Jesus. So go and find out what this means. Now, was that a nice thing? Is that was that a nice way to reply? Right. <laughs> Recently, I was I was in a class with a bunch of preachers. I'm taking a course on the prophets, and um, the teacher said, "Well, you know." Ministers, I'm looking at ministers, he's looking at ministers, and he says, can you guys go and give this kind of message to your own people? And I had to, uh, in all honesty, I had to think, yeah, I had no problem with that. And he was like, okay, you answered that a little too quickly. (laughs) Okay? Now, I admit there are ditches on both sides of the road. Because I have no, right, on on some level, I'm standing in this position I am. Next Sunday is my fifth anniversary of taking this job, and I can do it, right? I, I have no problem coming in here and telling you guys what I think. Now, you 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 ought to imitate that. Now there are I can tell you there are digits on both sides of the road. What what I want to address, right, are those who 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 take this knife and are gonna go and just stab anyone that they can find, or those people who are just like, no, I'm sorry, I just I, I can't do this. It's 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 not nice. Okay. God said to be meek. Yeah, he's he said to be meek, not weak. And what are, what's the difference between meekness and weakness? right? When you're instructing your child in how to ride a bike, how is your voice different than later when he's about to drive off the, off the, he she maybe, when she's about to drive off of your property into the road and doesn't see a car? Is the voice when you shout out at them and the voice that you use when you are teaching them how to ride a bike, is it the same? But this is the voice of love and this is the voice of life and this is the voice of love and this is the voice of life and we can't discern the difference. Spurgeon said, my brethren, bold-hearted men are always called mean-spirited by cowards. And and I think that we need to consider what this means. Bold-hearted men are always called mean-spirited by cowards. And so now, are there men men who are mean-spirited who really are mean-spirited? Yes. (laughs) Okay, yes. Are there men who are bold and they seem mean, but really everybody else is just extremely timid? Right? Now, now, do we, now, and also God's grace, do we want a church full of the men who have no problem, men and women have no problem telling everybody else what's wrong? No. Do we want a whole church full of people who are, who are so timid and quiet and nice and meek and weak and, all, and, and they go this other direction and nobody ever deals with anything? How, how does the household look that never deals with anything? How's the marriage that never deals with anything? How's the kid doing who you never deal with anything that they're doing? Matthew 18.15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Galatians 6.1, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. We see in this section the meaning behind Calvin's comment. The pastor ought to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and another for warding off and driving away wolves and thieves. The scripture supplies him in the means of doing both, for he who is deeply skilled in it will be able to both govern those who are teachable and to refute the enemies of the truth. If you were to mature, right, if we are all together going to mature in our ministries, from me all the way down to the newly baptized, we all of us need to learn what it means to be warriors of the word, right? Because what is a warrior who just attacks civilians? What do you call him? Right? You, can't, you just go around attacking everybody, friendlies. Right? This is what, there's video games I like to play, and, and I like those ones where killing your own teammates doesn't count against you because then you just shoot everybody. Right? It's a lot easier to play that game. But then when you've got to go around, you're like, oh, who, what is, ooh, ooh, not my uniform, ooh, get him. Right? That you have to be much more careful in that game. And that's what, that's what I'm talking about. It requires wisdom. We have to be warriors. We have to know who to fight, and we have, right? and we have to know who, who is on our team who is on our side? And, and even amongst warriors, do, right, and amongst generals, do you think in warfare generals ever have conflicting opinions as to what they ought to do? Eisenhower and Monty during World War II? Monty was a schmuck, but anyway. Eisenhower was probably right most of the time. But anyway, one's the leader of the British, one's the leader of the Americans, and they, never, they hardly ever agreed on what to do. <coughs> I just gave a massive generalization. I could defend it. But we're going to move on. Now, there's a wrong way and a right way to do what I'm talking about. If you scroll through Facebook and or discernment blogs and you see what they call now the reformed bro- bros, the reformed bros on the Internet, that is not the way to do it, okay? But your own silence in the face of other people's sin, your failure in the face of the enemy, declining to warn, declining to correct, to encourage, to confront, to call out, is also not how to do it. Now, either, right, I'm just going to give, why? Why are you... The way that you are. <laughs> right? It's, what what is the matter with you people? Right? And there's a number of reasons. Maybe you don't know. Maybe, maybe you just had no idea. Like, Mike, this is the first time I've ever heard this. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. Maybe you don't know how. Maybe you just don't know how. Like, how do you actually speak the truth and love? That it's co- it's complicated. It's a complicated thing to do. Okay, maybe you align with the weaknesses, meekness Christians. Maybe you hear that and you're like, no, no, you're supposed to just take it. You're supposed to just take the abuse. You're supposed to just be silent as a lamb like Jesus. Maybe you're part of that crowd, and you just don't agree with what I'm saying. That's also a possibility. It's also possible that you love your own comfort more than your neighbor. It's also possible you just don't love your neighbor at all. You look across over there at that guy, and you're like, eh, not my problem. And and there's no emotional attachment to him. There's no love between the two of you. And so you see what people are doing, you see what your children are doing, you see what your spouse is doing, you see what brothers and sisters in the faith are doing, and there is no love to compel you to do what you must do. Now that is a different problem altogether. Okay, if you want to know how to do it, it's in Titus chapter 1, verse 10 through 16. What what he shows us here is how to look, how to judge appropriately, and how to address appropriately. In our passage, we learn to discern the health of roots based on fruits, how to identify bad creeds through bad deeds, and we learn our responsibility in confronting it when we judge that it is present. Failing to do so is failing to love God and our neighbor. Now, going to verse 10, it says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Now, false teaching, it says here, is rebellion. Paul's use of the term insubordinate suggests that the false teaching was coming from within the ranks of Christians. Otherwise, right, their insubordination doesn't matter. If, if you're an unbeliever, I, 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 you're supposed to submit to the word of God, but I'm not going to assume necessarily that, that you would. Right? So the insubordination that they're talking about here in Greek, I think, implies that these, these people are actually Christians, especially because he says circumcision party. And the circumcision party, if you look that phrase up in the New Testament, it exists elsewhere, and that's the party spirit, right? It's like having a certain group of Christians who rally around a particular teacher or a particular teaching. Uh, you have Christian hedonists today, and they're followers of John Piper. You've got, the, you've got the Johnny Mac guys down there in L.A. who are pretty serious, okay? You have these different party spirits. Uh, I think we all know there's a, there's a guy right, who lives somewhere in the Pacific Northwest who a lot of people are super fanboys of. What's his name again? Oh, Doug Wilson, that's right. You get a party spirit. So he's talking about the circumcision party, he's talking about insubordination, and I believe what he's talking about are people who are Christians. And that actually helps in this whole context. It helps a great deal. What he's talking about are those who cannot endure to be brought to obey and who throw off the yoke of subjection. In sharp contrast to Paul the Apostle, who referred to himself as a slave of God, who preaches for the sake of other people's faith, other people's hope, other people's knowledge, other people's godliness. He says, I'm a slave. I'm a slave to God, and I'm doing this for others. And these people are insubordinate, and they're doing it for shameful gain. And they're, they're like the opposite of Paul. So now you have these two camps. Crete is covered with false teachers seeking shameless gain, who flout the official creeds of the church. They, they get a letter from Paul, and they're like, we don't care about Paul, okay?" because we have these older books they've been around a lot longer than Paul, written by Jewish mystics, and we're going to follow these, right? We have, we have these traditions. We have, there, there are, within the rabbinic tradition that is separate from what we find in the Old Testament, all kinds of other sects and groups and things, and they, they those are these people's authority, not the apostles. They don't recognize the authority of the apostles. And so when you're trying to figure this out, this is very helpful. I, I'm a I'm a theonomist and a Reconstructionist, right, just, just like Joel. Joel was raised by the godfather of Pacific Northwest Reconstructionism. If you don't know what that is, come talk to me afterwards. But what we believe is that, right, there's a great deal of the law that's, that still has to be worked out and applied and used by Christians, right? Theonomy is, is that the law of God is, is, applies to everybody still. Now, Christ come, and he's changed it, and they call it the law of Christ, and you go into this, and I myself have been called a Judaizer, right? <laughs> that's, I was like, well, how about we had official laws uh, based on the Old Testament? And you're like, oh, look at this Judaizer. And you're like, I don't think you know what that word means. Right? You keep saying it to me. Uh. Within the series C, our liturgy is based on Leviticus. Right? We take the, the order of sacrifices in Leviticus 1 through 7, and we structure our liturgy based on it. And all the proof texting for it comes from Leviticus. And, and, and there's all kinds of things to be said about that. So, but how you recognize the difference between real Judaizers and real circumcision party people is they completely reject the, the authority of the apostles. It's a helpful distinction. And these people are deceivers because they are first self-deceived. First John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And so some people deceive others because they don't know. That's not what's going on here. These are people who are rejecting authority and they have been, become self-deceived. And those who are self-deceived very quickly become those who deceive others. Because you yourself believe a lie that you're now teaching other people to believe. And that's what they're doing. It is not, right, these guys are not just confused. You know, they just haven't read enough J.I. Packer books yet. That's not the problem here. They've read all that, and they're like, nope, we're not going to follow it. Now Calvin's comment on this is helpful. He says he gives the appellation of empty talkers not only to the authors of false doctrines but to those who, addicted to ambitious display, occupy themselves with nothing but useless subtleties. Empty talk is contrasted with useful and solid doctrine and therefore includes all trivial and frivolous speculations which contain nothing but empty bombast because they contribute nothing to piety and to the fear of God. The house stewards of God must not be devoted to speculations. They must not be devoted to the various winds of doctrine, as Paul says elsewhere. They must not be devoted to the wisdom of men. But by faith, they are to grab hold of sound doctrine, the apostolic faith, Christ-centered faith. And they must defend it. Now, Paul calls these false teachers empty-headed in their teaching, doing much talking but saying nothing. And this is all too common in our own day just visit a Christian bookstore. I worked at a Christian bookstore. And I remember one time I got in trouble because someone asked for a book and I was like, oh, it's in the heresy section right over here. <laughs> and whenever someone would ask for a book, I was kind of cage stagey. I, I don't think that shocks anyone. Anytime somebody would ask for a book, I'd be like, well, the Bibles are right here. They're like, oh, you're looking for a 31 um, day long devotional. It's called Proverbs. It's right over here. Right? If you go to a Christian bookstore, it's full of, like, they have as many Amish romance novels as they do bad theology. It's full of nonsense. You turn on CBN, right? You go to an evangelifish service, and what you have, right, is, is all buzz and no saw. You have the noise of a buzz saw, but it doesn't cut anybody, right? They have a sword, but it, they're just rattling it in the saber. There's no actual substance to what's going on. And that's what these people are like. They're all talk, and there's no meat. There's, there's no meat and potatoes to it. It's air. It's nothing. It's meaningless. They talk. Nothing comes out of their mouths. Now, what's interesting is he, he says many, among many, among many, he says, for there are many. So he's not just talking about the circumcision party. But the circumcision party, he just kind of throws that out there and then moves on because, because he's going to deal with the many with the ethical things that he says. But, but, but remember, Titus was at, in, there in Acts 15 as an assistant to Paul at the first council where they dealt with the circumcision party. So he throws that term out there because he knows how to deal with those guys. He, he came up in the faith knowing how to deal with those men and their arguments. And so, he, again, remember this. He's, he's speaking in, sort of a, in, a, in a very edited-down version. Titus is supposed to fill in the, the differences. The others, besides the circumcision party, he's going to deal with step-by-step, step, I think, through the ethical instruction of the rest of the book. But he doesn't need to explain the circumcision party, who they are, where they come from, what their thing is, because Titus is fully aware. And he's like, I just deal with that. Okay, so Titus chapter 1, verse 11, we go on, and it says, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole households by teaching for shameful gain that, what they ought not to teach. Now, Paul's urgency here is obvious, to silence those who are teaching what they ought not to, Paul's call to action is not patient dialogue or peaceful arbitration for the sake of maintaining unity in the church. He's not going to have now a public debate. He's not going to say, oh, let's write papers and submit it to people and we'll get them peer-reviewed. Right? He's, he's not saying let's negotiate with these people. He's saying they're terrorists and they've got to be stopped. They've got to be silenced. They've got to be muzzled. The approach is not toleration. It's not passive aggressiveness. It's direct confrontation. And this is why it requires a mature person. This is why it requires the kind of person outlined in verses 5 through 9. It's a zero tolerance policy. And it's shocking, I think, to most modern Christians. But these individuals are upsetting whole households, plunging their converts into spiritual turmoil that leads naturally to relational turmoil. Now, turmoil in a household can often be traced back to lies, to faulty theology, to false doctrines. I think if, you, if, if you've been a Christian family for any amount of time, you've got extended family, and some cousin reads a book that you're not really sure who gave it to him, and next thing you know, that whole side of the family <laughs> is going off the rails. And then you sit down right? You sit down at Thanksgiving, and now you're, it used to be harmonious, and now we're debating some weird nuance of some cultish religiosity that I've never heard of before. And, and I don't know about you, I've only been a Christian since I was 25, and this has already happened to me. I see it. People get some weird idea, or they, they find some weird teaching, or they react to something, and it takes them down this road, and, and next thing you know, it's upsetting whole households. And, and oftentimes, when you get into turmoil in a household, more times than not, nine out of ten, you're going to find there's some lie, there's some doctrine, there's some belief, there's some something happened or something was believed or something was taught that threw everything off. And, and generally, if you can address that, you can, you can bring harmony to the household. But what these people were doing what was, was converting one person at a time in, in small groups, and then, okay, so now you're going to go and proselytize, right? Like imagine one family member becoming a Mormon, And next thing you know, you're sitting down to dinner, and your 18-year-old son, who's raised in the church, is now a Mormon. And he's trying to convert everybody else. And -and so-and-so, who's always looked up to him and loves him, also gets converted to Mormonism. Like, how quickly is that household going to get out of control? And that, I think, is what is going on here. Now, Douglas Wilson explains in the original Greek, it's actually a quite vigorous statement that he makes. It might be rendered in English, whom it would behoove to shut up. (laughs) right, <laughs> whom um, we would behoove to shut up, which preserves the strength of the Greek. The sentiment is echoed in Paul's quote in verse 12 that states that the Cretans are evil beasts. The rabid dogs must be muzzled. Again, the cult of nice leads many Christians astray at just this point. This, the cult pervades modern Christianity who idolizes the absence of conflict over the living and true word of God. I don't know how many times in the last few years I've heard, it, listen, if you want less conflict, stop fighting. Cease fighting, and you bring peace. Yeah, and how did that work out for Poland during World War II? Right, how did that work for all the other countries? It's just like, you know what? Wow, this conflict is intense. I'm just going to stop fighting. And does that bring peace? No, it just brings other kinds of conflict. And, and so what he's addressing is you have to go out and deal with this, okay? You can't, <laughs> you can't be passive about it, and, and, and it has to be direct. We can't, you know... <sighs> upstream of our idol of nice is the idol of comfort we just like to be comfortable and it's easier to be nice to people it's easier to just be pleasant with people right it's it, rather you have them over for dinner or you're here after church or you're at work isn't it it's just easier to just be like civil and nice and yeah no worldview collision but if you have a relationship where it gets to that point where you're like okay we can we, we can there is turmoil, but it's off stage. And what we need to do is bring the turmoil onstage and deal with it between these clashing worldviews because it's, it's causing me not to sleep at night. It's causing me to say things about this person that I ought not to be sa- said. And instead of dealing with things directly, we take the conflict offstage. It's like Greek tragedy. Greek tragedies, they never died onstage. Right? They go into the wings because it, was, it, was, it, wasn't not, it wasn't nice and polite Greek society, the pagans. Right? to watch people die on stage. And so you, you, they go off stage and they scream and then they come stumbling back and they fall down. The, right? and they, they didn't know how to make it look like you're really stabbing someone, I think, partially. But this is what we do. We take the conflict and we set it off stage and we, and we think that that's dealing with it and it's not dealing with it. The sordid character of these empty religionists is found in the motivation, their motivation, which Paul gives us. It's for shameful gain shameful gain, gain that they ought to be ashamed of. Filthy lucre is what they are seeking. And this is true. There, there were a bunch of wandering teachers in the ancient world offering a new and special initiation accompanied by teaching about mysteries, rituals, and the like, and demanding payment for their services. This was a big deal in Rome. In Roman culture, Christianity was re- originally considered a mystery cult. So what would happen is as, as Rome spreads out over the whole or world, you have these local deities and these local religions, and, and Rome tried to just assimilate everything. And they're like, you know what, I can make some money off this. And so they'd pack up and they'd travel around the empire, and they sell their religious secrets for money. And, and there were plenty of these amongst the Jewish parties, right? And, and, and I've said it before, several people, th- like Jews would travel around sometimes, and people would think they were some kind of weird magicians. Right? They could do things, they, they, they know the secret language that God used to make the world, for example, and, and so they could do secret things, magic things. And this is the kind of nonsense that they're dealing with. People who are selling, for shameful gain, secrets, right, religious secrets, and, and so that is what they have to stop. They have to, they have to put it down, they have to make it cease, they have to defend the people on Crete who are faithful, people who love Jesus Christ, the people who do submit to the apostles of the Lord, and and in order to protect them, they've got to stop those guys from talking. Paul is warning that these false teachers don't have the well-being of those who they proselytize in mind. They do not genuinely care for others. They are motivated by a desire to get money dishonestly. And this faithful preacher, Titus, has a strong word or or Paul, Paul, I'm sorry, Paul has a strong word for them, right? He's going to go on now, and he's going to say something that I think ought to shock us a little bit, especially us modern Christians. He says in verse 12, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. The testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. Now, false teachers seem to be native Cretans. That's why he's quoting a Cretan about Cretans. That's the other thing about them. They seem to be Christians. They also seem to be Cretans. Otherwise, why would he give a quote about Cretans? Now, the quote is from Epimenides, a 6th century BC philosopher. He was a venerated Cretan critic of the Cretan character. Crete Crete was a a spicy place, okay, as we're going to see here. Okay, this quote that that Paul quotes, the quote from Paul comes from Epimenides, and it's validated by historian Polybius, who, who wrote this of the Cretans. So much, in fact, do sordid love for gain and lust for wealth prevail among them that the Cretans are the only people in the world in whose eyes no gain is disgraceful. Money is the point and you make it any way you can no matter what you gotta do. And they justified and wrote all kinds of ethical works about how getting getting money was the principal point and do whatever you gotta do to do it. And that's that's Crete where Titus is like, oh now I gotta go find somebody who manages a household well who's not greedy for dishonest gain. He's got to find someone who's countercultural to to what Paul is describing here. Cicero wrote to the Cretans that they even regarded highway robbery as an honorable profession. Now, in the history of the world, highway robbery is kind of as low as it gets, right? In in fact, um, in in wartime, like back when war was more of a noble thing, uh, you hang highway robbers. You don't hang the captain of a French frigate. You cut his head off. You give him an honorable death. Hanging was the thing that was kept for the lowest level people, and that's highway robbers. In every culture that we, that has ever existed, even Cicero in ancient Rome was like, "Yeah, they even think highway robbery is okay, right?" And we live in a culture now where we wh- wh- what? Highway robbery is thought anyway. Okay, <laughs> highway robbery, no problem. We have much bigger problems to deal with. So it, right, it, you have all these property crimes now, and everybody's like, "Oh, it's fine." Now, the term evil brutes represents a maliciousness akin to savage animals. Lazy gluttons describes their aphorists. They are sensual and lustful for their own desires, like a pack of wild dogs. This is a lashing criticism of the Cretan character. The apostle urges Titus to take a strong hand with the unruly element in the church and is reminding him of the well-established character of the people with whom he is dealing. He's saying, hey, don't forget. Okay, Don't forget who you're dealing with. You're there doing ministry, and I want you to know exactly who you're dealing with, and these people are pretty awful. Now, it, it, it's a sweeping generalization that he makes, something that is anathema amongst PC advocates of our own culture, whether you're Christian or not. Sweeping generalizations are something that you're not allowed to do. Okay? It's against the zeitgeist of, the, of, of modern culture. But if I were to say something like all Seattleites are libtards, all Seattleites, they're just a bunch of libtards. <laughs> now, I think Paul would love that. Paul would be like, man, you really, that's a spicy little thing he came up with there. Good job, buddy. Fist bump. It's the kind of language he would use, but it offends us, doesn't it? It offends you. And, it, and, it, and actually, it's supposed to, right? Now, now, let me back up and get very schol- like scholarly on everyone. What is it that I mean by this term? It means that the liberal ideology of the Seattle progressives has darkened their minds to the point of complete mental atrophy. Now, I could say that, or I could say Seattleites are real libtards. Now, there's a point where probably one of those statements works better than the other one, and, I, and, and this is my point. This is my point. If I, if I was in a certain context, I would not say libtards. Which, by the way, I was talking to Dean on the phone, Dean Hellickson, the former pastor, and I, I used this phrase, and I could not get him to stop laughing. He'd never heard it before. I was like, just trademark that thing, baby. In Espanol, they won't know what you mean. But why does he make this sweeping generalization? Why does he just sum up everyone? And and also what's really funny is he's told Titus to find amongst these men people worthy to be an elder. So clearly everyone on Crete isn't this way. So why is he saying something that on, on, on one hand is less true? Why is he doing that? Why is he saying this? For goodness sakes, people, this is a pagan prophet quoted by the apostle, and it is now in Scripture for eternity. And it's a sweeping generalization that, that is extremely damning about the people that it, he's talking about. It is not polite. It is not kind. And, and on one level, I agree with everyone who criticizes the serrated edge. Why would he do this? Why? Now, most of us, a lot of us, I think, are like, yeah, that's, yeah. there goes Paul again. I love it. And some of us are just like, yeah, we're on board with that. But it is not kind, and I, and I think that it is not nice. And he says it anyway. And I think that we have to deal with both. It is not polite, and he did it. So what is, why is it there? Right? I, I know why Titus needed to know it, but why, is, why have all the letters between the two of them, did that make it into scripture? Unless there is something about this that we all desperately need to learn. Too many of us want nuance in things where direct and cutting is needed, and we words. And some of us use words like blunt force weapons when the gentle touch would get further. Because the tones of our ministry are immature, we must learn to speak in all the tones of the Bible, even the cutting and satirical, even generalizations. Every minister, every community must know, they must be cognizant of the character of the people they're dealing with. Right? Who, are, who are we dealing with in this culture? And if we were to describe Seattleites, if we were to describe Washingtonians, if we were to describe people in the, right, I call them watermelons, I didn't make up that term, because on the outside they're green, but on the inside they're red-hot commies, right? And for me, I'm like, that just describes them perfectly, and, <laughs> and it's a rude, and yes, yes it is rude. But here's a question. Okay, so the, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, And he's asking him hard questions. And it says that Jesus looks on him and loves him. And then tells him something that is sorrowful to his heart. And he goes, he doesn't come to Christ, he goes away from Christ. Now, I thought you loved him, Jesus. I thought you loved him. Oh, but you said something to him that filled his heart with sorrow and sent him away. Now, (laughs) again well, that's Jesus, okay? It is, and he's the standard by which we all should live. You should look on people that you love and be able to say something that fills their heart with sorrows, that does for a time separate because sin separates, right? It's, the, the separation already exists, and what you're doing is just bringing it out in the open. I just said that thing. There's already separation here spiritually, intimately, and now what I've done is separated you physically so that we can actually deal with the separation, right? Because the rich young ruler had to deal with the fact that he was not with Christ, and, and it, was, it was with love that he looked upon him and did that. And so this letter is being read to Titus out loud in front of the Cretans, and there's a bunch of Cretans, and they're like, what did he just say? <laughs> all Seattleites are libtards? Right? Now, I mean, I, I wish they were here. The Lilias aren't here. They live in Seattle. Do you think I mean them? No, but I mean, I, I <laughs> all Seattleites are libtards. They've, I think they would feel seen a little bit. Like, why are you, bringing, why are you pointing us out? Okay, the Titan or Titus's Cretan opponents are worldly through and through and through. That is what he needs to know. He needs to know because he needs to rebuke them. He needs to give them a sharp and cutting word. Discerning the false teachers is the crucial part. Not everyone is promoting what is true. Not everyone in the culture is promoting what's good, what's beautiful, and so who some need to be muzzled. and some need to be encouraged. Now, what we learn from this is that he, he's not now, right, Titus is not going to sit there and be like, okay, all Cretans are worthless, no goods. And so now I'm going to just go and preach to the whole culture as if everybody is the same. No, he knows that there are people who are suffering, people who are being lied to, people who are being sinned against by these false teachers, and he's got to deal with those people in one way, and he's got to deal with the false teachers in another. It's not the same. Now, the last thing here is that he's, right, the last thing in this before we move to the conclusion of this is that he says that the reason you're going to rebuke them is so that they would be sound in the faith. Now, think about that for a second. It's not cancel culture. He doesn't just say, well, we're going to round all these people up and stick them on a boat and put them out in the Mediterranean. No, you're rebuking them because you want them to be sound in the faith. And, and all too often all of us are like, well, he's a false teacher or he said one false thing, and now we're just going to not read his books anymore. Right? I, <laughs> Tim Keller, anybody? Johnny Mac, anybody? Doug Wilson, anybody? Right? There are things Doug Wilson has said that I'm like, dude, you just said that and that is not right. Now, what kind of Christian would I be, be like, well, let's take all the books that he's written now and we're going to take them out in the parking lot. And we're going to burn them. If I got rid of all the books of everyone who has said something erroneous, I would not have a library. Right? We, we rebuke people because what we want is to bring them back sound, soundly in the faith. We want to, and this church discipline, even excommunication, is about this, winning back the person. Win the man, not the argument. People want to just win the argument, but the, the purpose of the argument is to win the man. Now, last but not least here, okay, Paul's quote about um, the Cretans ex- exhorting Titus here and the Christians on Crete to see See. What he wants them to see is the basis, nature, and effect of joining sound teaching with good practice. Look at what those guys are doing. Look at what they believe, okay? And now what I want you to do is find people who are good house stewards so that they can be house stewards of God's household. He wants wants them to be able to judge the difference between the two. And so that's why he goes on and concludes with this. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Right? These guys over here, you can tell that their creeds are right because they are good household managers, they love one woman, and they raise their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And you see these guys over here who are in it only for shameful gain, whose works are worthless, but they say they know God. Cretans, be able to tell the difference between the two. And we modern Christians are like, well, that's just not very polite, Paul, right? Our culture is different now, Paul. I can't just say that to people. You can't say it to people. You can't even say it to yourself. You can't even say it to your spouse. You can't even say it to your kids. And when you start to struggle, right, how are you going to go up, level up, level up, level up when you can't do it on the smallest scale, right and i've read romans you who teach against hypocrisy are you yourself a hypocrite you who teach against adultery are you yourself an adulterer i understand i'm standing there with you guys receiving this message of all things because it goes because damnable liars and heretics have said to you do not judge they have said don't do it they say do not judge full stop and, and, and this is what we have to deal with. And this is why I'm, I'm with you, and this is the conclusion of this. Don't worry. Everyone's getting hungry. It's getting hot in here. But if you turn to Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 through 5, we read a startling truth. And we reveal that we are being lied to by people who are not in it for you. It says, judge not that you be not judged. Now, if you don't want to be judged, don't judge anyone. That's what it says. It doesn't say don't make a judgment. It says make a judgment, but get ready. Get ready, because when you start going around judging people, the finger might get pointed back at you. And how many times have you had an argument with your spouse where you bring up something and they're like, well, yeah, but you this. You're like, oh, okay." let me throw one back at you, right? And then you're just there and you're like, I outweigh her by like 300 pounds, so let's do this. And that's how you're jabbing and fighting. You sit down with a brother in Christ, and and, and you're new to this, and you say something, and so he fires back. It doesn't say don't judge. It says if you're going to judge, be prepared. And he goes on, and that's what the context of the verses mean. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will yourself be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly, and take the speck out of your brother's eye. Okay. So it doesn't say, don't judge. It says, before I'm going to go to you, before I'm going to come to you, I'm going to get on my knees, and I'm going to talk to God and be like, listen, I really feel a burden for this person i feel that i see this thing and i'm judging it it's not good and i don't want to go there with logs in my eye please reveal to me whatever it is i need and very quickly you're like oh yeah, yeah oh yeah okay okay well i'm going to go and apologize to this person and i'm going to go and i'm going to apologize to that person and then i'm going to get myself right and i'm going to come and see you and that's how it's done and then we have all these filthy liars who are saying oh don't judge don't be so judgy and so the church declines and declines and declines and declines because we love our comfort more than we love the Word of God, more than we love the glory of God, more than we love righteousness. And, and how did Jesus do this? He did it with tears. He saw Jerusalem and he sees Jerusalem and weeping, he pronounces its destruction. And did they have time at that point still to turn? Oh, yes. He goes and he sees there and he sees a, a brother who he loves dead and is dead. Lazarus is dead. And with tears in his eyes, he cries out words on his behalf that bring him back to life. That's what it means to re- regain a brother. You have a brother who's in sin and he's dying. You're bringing him back to life, right? And Jesus went around with, all, with nothing but sinners and he did it in, with so much joy and happiness, they called him a glutton and a drunkard we are like, wait, is he healing the nations or is he just partying everywhere? Can't he do both? And I'm going to go back to the beginning. This is why it's a swashbuckling ethic. You're supposed to have faith like a little child. You're supposed to delight in nature like a little child. You're supposed to delight in God's world like a little child. You're supposed to delight in one another and their peopleishness. Because love covers a multitude. And sometimes you see people and you're just like, man, that is a human being right there. Look at that human being. You're just human being this up all over the place. And if you thought about that, right, and, if you, and you realize, you know, whatever I'm going to say to them, it's quite possible they're going to come back at me with something that's real or in their own defense. I can't defend, right? They're trying to defend themselves like they shouldn't. And they may actually say something and be like, actually, that's a good point. <laughs> I do do that. And so you've got to deal with yourself first, and then you deal with one another. And if you can't do it at home, you're not going to be able to do it here. If you can't do it with one another in your own homes, you can't do it in the household of God. And so who do you love more, God or yourself? Do you love your neighbor more or yourself more? God, thank you. Amen. (laughs) Wherever that came from, out of the mouth of babes. And so as we go from here, this whole section is about this. You You take this and you get yourself right. Put it in order. Put yourself in order. And then you go in your household, and you put your household in order. Okay, And that may take a long time. That may take the rest of your life, and it never quite comes off like you hope, but you're working and struggling, like Noah building an ark in the middle of a desert. He just kept doing it, and he was more faithful at doing, building that stupid boat than, than most of us will live. And his faithfulness just went on and on and on. And you may never actually, right, Moses never made it into the promised land. You take this, you get yourself in order, and you start to get your household in order. And if you do, what then you will be qualified to do is to start to put the household of God in order, which then will put Crete in order. And then we're cooking with oil, baby. And that might take 50 generations. Don't get me wrong. I'm a post-millennialist. I got lots of time. But it's the thing to do. That is what we're called to, all of us, you and me. And so... Don't be nice. Don't be weak. Be loving. Be judgy. But if you're going to do that, be prepared. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and kindness. I pray that you uh, give us a great deal of humility and faith, Lord, as we consider ourselves and consider one another. Lord, you are a great and merciful God. We know that love covers a multitude of sins. We know, Lord, that there are a great number of sins that we must confess to one another. We know, Lord, that we are um, people of unclean lips, but we are here today so that you might make us clean. Again, that you might renew in us the right spirit, that you might renew our minds, that we might go forth from here loving you and loving our neighbor as Christ loved you and his neighbor. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.